August the 6th, 2017, lecture discussion number 292 on the Book of Romans. It's really, really hot. This is the third hot day in a row for us, and we're so just so tired of it. We don't want this kind of weather. We want to get back to the dark coldness, which is impending, as you know. Anyway, that's why the last few weeks I have not worn a tie. It's too hot. It's 72 degrees. Can't bear it. Today is going to be my first undertaking um, attempt, if you prefer, at completing our latest traversing of Genesis 3. We have gone back into Genesis 3. I've done it many times. We've done it again. And I'm hoping to end uh, this latest enterprise today. But it's doubtful that I'm going to. So all ye who thought otherwise, abandon hope. By now, assuming that I have properly presented the material, and that is never the case. I've never done justice to the complexity or the complexities of Genesis chapter 3, or any Bible verse for that matter. It's never been the case, try as I might. Um, but if I have at least got some of the value out of it and put it on the plate, then that's a good thing. And all of you have, who have endured the past months of this latest Genesis 3 series might now be beginning to understand the scope of what happened there. Uh, the extensiveness of it. That's one of the things that I don't think that I handle well in my dotage. My, I'm losing my patience with everything, which is exactly as my father did. I should completely mimic his behavior eventually. That was his uh, hypothesis. In other words, uh, uh, he was certain that I was the most likely to be like him. That's not good news for me. But if that's the case... I want you to understand that I am losing patience with the theological centers of our country or our world for that matter. And one of the things that just really gets me frustrated, by frustrated it means I throw things at televisions and scream at them, is this pervasive position that Genesis 3 is a simple story. It just drives me out of my mind. It's unbelievably complicated. It, it, it is so far-reaching, I, I can't even begin to explain it. So if I've at least got that through a little bit, then I can uh, go about my uh, inevitability. Long, long ago, at least 25 years ago, um, I really got into Clarence Larkin. I had I knew who he was from when I was a young man, and um, I knew his book and his charts were amazing for a man who was pretty much isolated theologically from all outside influences. I knew his influence that he had on Dallas Theological Semin Seminary, but um, about 20, 25 years ago, I really got into him, and he wrote this, and it changed me because I, I got this from it. I can't. I, I can't uh, specifically re bring the quote to you now, but it was some, something like this. He wrote that Genesis 3, 14, and 15 is ubiquitous in the Bible. It is everywhere in the Bible. And that it was wise to find it every time you read Scripture. He called it the trail of the serpent or the seed of the woman against the seed of, the, of Satan. And he thought that you should always 
you should develop the ability to discover Genesis 3. He thought it was uh, essential to great understanding, and especially Genesis 3.15. Don't overlook it when you read your Bible. If you do, you greatly devalue your efforts. And that impacted me. So I began to look for Genesis 3 everywhere because I thought he was right. And he is right. Uh, we have people who are bringing food. We should wait just a few seconds for them. If you're bringing food, you have a lot of authority here. I see them coming through the parking lot as, uh, as I'm going, so I'm intentionally stalling. That's what we call this, uh, us professionals. It is your mother, that's right, and, and your aunt. It's, it's your family once again. But we're not saying anything because of their past uh, participation at an extraordinarily high level. Okay, well, they've entered the building. Now I can continue. The whole point is, when you are reading your Bible, you're studying your Bible, always have off to the side somewhere that, hey, I might come across Genesis 3.15, especially in the Old Testament. If you're starting to read the Old Testament at length, and I hope you are looking for pictures of Christ, he is the seed of the woman. So you're going to find the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in the Old Testament. It testifies of him. And last Sunday, or perhaps the prior Sunday, who can remember uh, that far into the past? That's a rhetorical question that presupposes the answer is nobody, including me for sure. But uh, within the last few weeks, I may have mentioned that the typology of Samson has a Genesis 3 application. It most certainly does. Samson, in other words, provides significant information. So if you're reading Genesis 3, you will find yourself at some point reading uh, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, specifically uh, chapter 14. Samson has content that is contributed to the mystery that is Genesis 3. So if you're trying to evaluate what is really happening in Genesis 3, there are all kinds of places in the Old Testament. And in this case, today, I'm going to deal with Samson just a little bit, just to demonstrate it. But placing Genesis side by side, Genesis 3 side by side, with Genesis 13 and 14, that's going to provide insights that have eluded everyone who has not done that. And Clarence Larkin would say, see, I told you so. Mike from California, you might have remembered his letter. I passed it out for everybody to read because I found it to to be applicable. He wrote recently to ask if I could find time to revisit Samson because of its obvious connectivity to Genesis 3. And he's absolutely right. And I thought it might be helpful for everyone, to everyone, both here and on the Internet, Albeit it'll be, albeit it'll be shallow to take a run at Judges to further illustrate Clarence's point. So let's go to Judah, Judas, Judges 14, 5 through 19. And let's see what we can learn about Adam, Eve, and the serpent and the angelic host from Judges 5, or Judges 14, 5 through 19. So, here we go. We have the lights off. 
because the lights are hot. No, I don't need them. But I do have to raise my glasses. So, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Do you see Genesis 3? Now, to his surprise, and actually to his is inferred and not necessarily in the text, now, surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother or his mother what he had done. Now, you have to go back to Judges 13 to figure out why he did that. For now, just recognize that it's there. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And she pleased Samson well. Which woman is this? And after some time when he returned to get her, he he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, behold. I'm going to lose my glasses. Behold. Okay, what comes next is extraordinary information. A swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. That has incredible theological significance. Don't go past it. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. Then he came to his father and mother and he gave some to them and they also ate. Aha. So his father... He did, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, and for young men used to do so. And it, and it happened when he saw him that he brought thirty companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, Let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, that is a marriage ceremony, a seven-day pattern. And then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they went to Samson's wife, entice your husband. Evidently, Samson's predilections were well known. Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? And then it goes on, Samson's wife wept on him. Okay, let's start out with this a little bit. A young lion. Surprises Samson. Roaring against him. So I have a roaring young lion. And Samson tears the lion apart with his bare hands. 
hands only. I should say right here, if you haven't never heard my opinion on Samson, I'll give it to you now. I think he was a man of about uh, maybe a hundred pounds and five foot one or two. He was a tiny little man. Think uh, uh, Wally Cox. Does that mean anything to anybody that's not my age? This was a small Jewish man. And the Philistines were amazed at the supernatural capability he had. This was not a, a, a massive man at all. I think that becomes obvious because of his typological aspect. I don't have time to get into that today, but just recognize that that's the opinion, I think, that he, you can defend the best. Uh, and he does this as you would a small goat. Okay, when I say small goat, how small is small? Yes, those of you who are farmers, you know what he, he means by small goat. He tore this lion apart like you would tear apart an infant goat. So, that takes a tremendous amount of strength, doesn't it? We could stop right there. I could just take those five things and just in right here, we could spend hours there. And I don't have time today. I don't know that I'll have time. But it's just an extraordinary place in Scripture. I'm asking you to find Genesis 3.16. Needless to say, Samson is a confounding wrapped in secrecy. It is very, very difficult. I have said many times that I think it is the most difficult typological portion in all of the Old Testament. There is so much to unravel in Judges 13-16. through 16, It's disorienting. Uh, it takes a long time, and it's very, very difficult in my view. I to keep repeating myself. As an aside, in order to really understand Samson, those of you who decide to do this on your own, and good for you, you've got to go back to Jep- Jephthah's daughter in uh, Judges 12. Before venturing into Samson, Jephthah's daughter has to be properly put in the right position, and that itself is a challenge. And I'll just tell, tell you really quickly. Do not err in concluding that Jephthah's daughter was killed. That would be a Christ-dishonoring position. She was not sacrificed to Christ. If you have that view, you are way, way off the path of doctrinal soundness. She was consecrated, dedicated into temple service. She had a period of time that she went into the wilderness that becomes extremely important in prophecy. When she was consecrated, dedicated into temple service, the consequences to Jephthah was that she would never bear children, and therefore he would not be in the Messianic line, and he had great desire to be in the Messianic line. Anyway, Samson ate from the carcass of the dead lion. He ate... Honeybees, we've got honeybees, honey and bees, and honeybees. We have all three. Thank you for laughing. I worked hard on that. I laughed when I wrote it, so it's really good. You can come late every time to church from now on because of your laughing at my joke. It's fantastic. <laughs> He ate from the carcass of the dead lion. Honeybees had swarmed and 
Samson reached in and took their honey. How do they respond to that? Just as an obvious question. And he ate the honey from the dead, young, torn apart, destroyed, roaring lion. I won't put all that up there. I'll just repeat it. He ate the honey from the dead, young, torn apart, destroyed, roaring lion. And hopefully you begin to contemplate the hundreds and hundreds of obvious questions. I've only got to G. I could keep going here. But there's hundreds of them, and they're flying out at you and me like a swarm of bees <laughs> stinging you in the head. How does he do it? I know. How does he do it? These are these fantastic analogies that just fit perfectly with the text. Wow. Just wow. What talent. Okay, let's try a few of the easiest questions. If there is a young, roaring lion that is a surprise to Samson. Now, Samson is a Nazarite. He has taken the Nazaritic vow. He has been a, he's dedicated to God. See, not only was Jephthah's daughter dedicated, but Samson is dedicated. They're back to back. That should help you understand what's going on. So, he is dedicated for life as a Nazarite, and Nazarites are typically not dedicated for life. It has a duration, but not with Samson. His father and mother made him one for life. So and then you find out what the Nazaretic oath is or the vow is, and you begin to recognize that he is a type of who here? Clearly, he is a type of Christ. He also becomes, he moves all over the place. Again, let me tell you, I, one of the complaints I had when I did Samson many, many years ago is uh, a gentleman came up and said, why doesn't God make his typologies easier? Because he has respect for you. That's why. He does not want you to be a child who says, here, tie my shoe. He wants you to tie your own shoes. Here, feed me. He wants you to make your own peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Okay? If there is, if there is a young roaring lion that is a surprise to Samson, and that, that in itself is something that has to be dealt with. Then the question becomes, is there an old roaring lion? I have a young roaring lion. Do I have an old roaring lion? Or do I have an old lion that isn't roaring at all? He's a lot sneakier. This one comes out roaring. Would that turn out to be a mistake? Those of you who have followed um, the bears up here know that the bears don't, give you a lot of warning. They come very quickly and very silently. So do lions, typically. But this one came right out, roared, and how did it go for him? Not good. He got ripped to pieces. So if I have a young roaring lion that is a surprise, is there an old roaring lion that is less of a surprise, uh, or a known lion that's not a surprise? Surprise implies ambush or astonishment. Those are two choices. Which is it for Samson? Clearly, Samson is not uh, threatened by the roaring young lion because he easily kills it. It's effortless. He kills this lion without any effort. 
That, of course, takes us where in the Bible? Where does somebody in the New Testament kill a, lo- a roaring lion, tears, it, tears the roaring lion apart without any effort? I will give you your first place. First Thessalonians, make sure I get it right, 2.8. And also go to 1 Peter 5.8. There's more, but those two would get you started. Peter assigns roaring lion to who in, in uh, 1 Peter 5.8? Who is a roaring lion that goes about stalking, looking to devour you? That's a picture of Satan. So I have a roaring lion here in Samson. Who is it? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8. Satan is a roaring lion. Is he? Uh, uh, <clears throat> so, and he is the serpent of old. So I make that makes me ask: Is he the roaring lion of old, or is he the young lion here? Many people have Satan as the young lion. Does that work? The roaring lion, or the young? I'm sorry, the old lion, or the young lion? The young lion is ripped apart with complete ease by the Nazarite, the man of the Nazarethic. Nazareth can't say it. Nazaritic oath. Thank you. I say thank you because somebody should applaud when I get it right. It didn't happen. We need to work on that. The young lion is ripped apart with complete ease by the Nazarite, the man of the Nazaritic oath, who is also called the Nazarene. Samson the Nazarene. I, as I always do, am running down the field whilst my team remains in the huddle. So let me back up a bit. How many times do honeybees form nests in the cavities of dead lions? You've lived in Alaska, most of you, for a long, long time. Let's just take a grizzly bear you ever, or a moose. You ever come across a moose car- carcass or a grizzly bear carcass? caribou carcass, and there it is, a swarm of honeybees in there. And you go, wow, let's all stop and reach in and take some honey out of the dead caribou carcass. Anybody do that? When you read the story, did you go, what? This is, it's a behold. I took the behold off. So that tells you there's a deep theological message here. By God has placed it here. Did it really happen? Absolutely, it really, literally happened. Inside of it is great doctrine. Behold means great doctrine, right? Honeybees, how many nests do they form in cavities of dead animals, especially lions, dead animals of any kind? I would submit that honeybees being reasonably cognizant of the predators that come after them would not select the cadaver of a lion. Very often. Okay, never. So what's happening here? Honeybees construct hives. I have a beehive in my crawl space. It's actually hornets. And I found it up, up in my attic. I'm up there running electrical systems and putting a platform up there so that I can get to it. And there is a hornet's nest the size of a basketball. And I'm in there at my age crawling through the, the uh, uh, 
the cords of the trusses, they're just common trusses, laying down tongue and groove planking so that I can move around, all to put in a fan. I need a fan because it's so unbearably hot in Alaska that I have to have a fan to sleep. So that's what I'm doing. And there's this nest, this big. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And I, um, and I have my flashlight on it. Why? Because if I see anything come out of it, I'm out of there. You're going to see how fast I can roll to the opening and fall down into the living room, or the bedroom in this case. Fortunately, they had abandoned it. But as soon as I saw it, I said, I did not say, I wonder if there's any honey in it. I didn't do that. <laughs> but here is a honey bee nest in the cavity of a dead animal. And I'm saying to you, that's not, that didn't, that doesn't happen. Honeybees are smart enough to not select dead animals on the ground. What will happen to them? Honeybees construct Hives in live trees, not even in dead trees, live trees, they, they primarily. And dead animals are not their decision. Obviously, this is a supernatural anomaly with a behold in front of it. So what does it mean? Well, there, there, as you might expect, are as many views on this as there are commentators. That is not helpful. But if you begin to research this, everybody has a plan I would say with respect to Samson, there is no consensus at all beyond the Nazaritic vow being a portrait of Christ. That is why Christ chooses Nazareth, in my opinion. He decides that he is going to be called Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. It's the fulfillment of Matthew 2.23. Matthew 2.23 says this, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Why did he do it? He could have picked Bethlehem. He could have picked Jerusalem. He could have. Why did he pick Nazareth? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. That's Matthew 2.23. The prophets said that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Where in the Old Testament does it say that the, that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene? I will help you. Nowhere. Nazareth is not even in the Old Testament at all. So where in the Old Testament does it say that he will be a Nazarene? And this, this prophecy was long a mystery, and I submit that the fulfillment rests in Judges 13, the Nazaritic vow, the typology of Samson. Christ wanted you to know that Samson is a type of him. He wanted you to look at the Nazaritic oath he wanted you to evaluate the vow of the Nazarene. He wanted you to read the story of Samson and find him in it. That's what he's doing. That is the prophecy. The prophecy that uh, Matthew spoke about is the typology of Samson. Anyway, following Clarence's lead and 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and Revelation 19. Let me put them, that on there. 19-21. Is it becoming clear that the killing of the young roaring lion by the destroyers of the enemies of Israel, that's what Samson is. He is the destroyer of the enemies of Israel. It's what he does. Is it clear that that is a Genesis 3.15 reference? 
I hope it is. This is the seed of the woman shall inflict fatality on the seed of the serpent of old. Samson tearing this young lion apart with absolute ease is exactly what happens to who in the Bible? The Antichrist. He is a roaring destroyer, formidable, and Christ dispatches him with a breath. And he obliterates him, tears him to pieces. Pink mist. It's what he does to him. Instantly. Samson does it to this young lion. We are seeing, uh, given to us, a Genesis, the Genesis 3.15 reference, the seed of the woman shall inflict fatality on the seed of the serpent of old. So far it seems to be, as many pa- passages likewise depict, a Genesis 3.15 reflecting or reflection, the producing of a mirrored image, a dim mirrored image, 1 Corinthians 13.12. But everything that comes after the young lion being torn apart is extremely difficult for the scholar class, for the theologians who make money selling books. Pretty much it's a brawl in the mud from here forward in the theological circle. It's a slap fight in a mud pit. And it's, uh, I think, absolutely uh, fascinating to see all of these men of and I'll call them learned men, they really are, and women, try to deal with Samson. I think this has occurred, this slap fight, because of the the failure to establish Larkin's principle. They don't find Genesis 3.15 here. By not finding it, they certainly don't find it in the beginning. They have all these young lion ideas. They don't see Genesis 3.15. And now we have real problems. Ruth... Habershon, Ada Ruth Habershon, as well, her principle, find Christ. These are they which testify of him. Find him first. Find Christ first. Larkin would then exhort us to note that which pertains to Genesis 3.15. Okay? So that's, if you fail there, you're going to never figure out honeys or honeybees or swarms of bees. But let's just talk about the honey. On to the honey. The honeybee and the swarms. This is a swarm. I have a swarm of them, many, many bees. Was Samson at all concerned about reaching in and grabbing the honey from the swarm of honeybees? Didn't affect him at all. Now, some prominent theologians see the swarming bees as the nation of Israel. So you should know that. And the honey, therefore, from the dead, unclean corpse as the land of Canaan. That's not uncommon. It's also not a stable position either. The problems begin to rise when you read Proverbs 25:27. Let me put that on there. If you have the position that the swarm of bees is Israel and they're coming out of the dead carcass of Canaan, and they, are, they have made honey, um, then here you're going to run into some problems at Proverbs 25, 27, which says this, It is not good to eat much honey. To seek one's own glory is not glory. So what did you just learn? 
Honey has a symbolism of being the glory of mankind. Honey is not to be included in the offerings. It is not acceptable to God. We went through Leviticus 2.11. What do you have to put in the offerings? Salt. You do not put honey in there. He rejects it if it has honey. Again, that's humanity. Sinful humanity. Not acceptable. Proverbs 27.7 A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. Hates it. Manna is placed in contrast to honey. Exodus 16.31 One is picked up. You're told to pick up the manna. The other is you're told to trample it underfoot. Honey you trample. So if the honeybees are Israel... Israel is not in a good place. Would God bring Israel out of the carcass of an unclean dead animal? Bees, Deuteronomy 144, are described as the enemies of Israel. David in Psalms 118.12 describes his enemies as a swarm of bees. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. How did he get, how did Samson get the bees? I get the honey. How many bees he kill? Is it your position that he reaches inside of a dead lion that he has torn to pieces, he grabs the honey, he eats it, and the bees leave him alone? They just go, oh, Samson, see you, we'll be over here swarming. We'll just let you have it. What did the honey bees do to Samson or attempt to do? Were they successful? Was he affected by them? They are the enemies of Israel. In any event, Judges 14 is going to be a difficult endeavor. Pack a lunch. One more quick question. Samson gave the honey from the unclean, rotting body of the young, roaring lion to his devout father and mother who dedicated him for his life, who... Uh, put him in the Nazaritic vow or oath, made him a, or had him be a Nazarite. He gives them the honey, again, from the unclean, rotting corpse of a young, roaring lion to eat. And they also ate. Let's put that up there. Ate. Oh, my goodness. They ate. Samson brings. Now, this is where Samson gets really difficult. Samson brings something to eat that is inside of a dead body, and he gives it to a man and a woman. Okay, what would Larkin say to you? Did they knowingly eat the honey, or did Samson deceive them? Did you think Samson went to them and say, Hi, guys, I've got honey from a rotting corpse. I killed a lion. And honeybees went into the corpse, made honey. Here, eat some. Did he do that? He did not. I think it's obvious he did not. Who then is Samson here? Okay, you've got to stop. I've got to stop. But you can see the magnitude of the mysteries that are given in Judges 13 through 16. It's remarkable. It's arduous. Uh, but that's where I've got to shut it down for today. I'll mess with it a little bit again, but I have other things I need to finish. 
I'm a little, I was a little bit worried when I saw the temperature would be 79 degrees without a cloud in the sky today. I knew it was going to be tough sledding for the old ball coach here. So I thought, okay, this is a good time to give you Samson so that you can start the process of finding Christ everywhere you look, finding Genesis 3.15. If you find Christ, the chances that you've found seed versus seed is very high. That's what Larkin and Ada Ruth Habershon would say to you. If they were standing here, I would be sitting next to you. But they would say, find Christ everywhere. It's what they devoted their lives to doing. Okay. Last Sunday, I initiated the case. Let me get rid of this. That the, let me, uh, I, I will resist the instinct to just wing it. I initiated the case that cattle and beasts cannot be cattle and beasts. So let me put that equation on the board. Cattle and beasts are not cattle and beasts. If you think cattle and beasts are cattle and beasts, then I believe that you are in a difficult position. This is to say that physical organic cattle were not cursed by God at Genesis 3.14. He did not curse cows and calves, or bulls for that matter. We'll get into bulls later. Nor were the beasts cursed, the beasts of the organic earth. Besides the argument for the character of God, the goodness of God, there's, there is the condition of the garden. Let me repeat that. He did not curse these animals because of the character that he possesses. And there is also the condition of the garden. I brought this up after the, in the aftermath yesterday to some of you. I'll do it now for the internet and the rest of you that might have missed it. I have a tendency to give away next week's sermon uh, on, on today if you give me enough food. So I have the goodness of God and I have the condition of the garden. That tells me that cattle and beasts are not cattle and beasts. And I hope that makes sense to you. Cursed. Again, let me keep going backwards here. Both of those, the goodness of God and the condition of the garden, prevent earthly created cattle and beasts of the earth from being cast into the lake of fire. God did not throw cows and bears and dogs into the lake of fire. Cursed within the context of Genesis 3, 14 and 15, cursed being a declaration by the Lord God Almighty Himself, the Ancient of Days, the I Am, the Lamb of God, only can refer to the destiny of the lake of fire. What cursed equals lake of fire. Covered that as much as I could. Um, when God says you're cursed then that means that you are going into, you have a destination of the lake of fire. He did not put cattle and beasts there. And it can only refer to the destiny of the lake of fire when God says it. Again, Matthew 25:41 is a Genesis 3:14:15 verse. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. That's where we learn goats and sheep are not goats and sheep.
If you think goats and sheep are goats and sheep in Matthew 25, 41, then you're likely to think cattle and beasts are cattle and beasts in Genesis 3:14. You do not think goats and sheep are goats and sheep in Matthew 24:41. You know who they are. They're not just individuals, they're nations. He did not throw some little lamb into the lake of fire in Matthew 25:41. He says, "Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire." The introduction of those solemn words are are then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed. So those on the left hand are cursed and they're thrown into the lake of fire. And so we have the lake of fire in both places. In my view, as you know, I've made that case as much as I can, that when God says cursed, he is talking about the lake of fire. When he specifically says cursed to um, Satan and his fallen angels, he reveals in Matthew 25, 41, that they are going to the lake of fire. So the lake of fire has to be the context of Genesis 3, 14. Done with that. There is something that God says to, this is something that he always says to those whom are condemned to eternal death. Those who choose eternal death are identified as being residents of the lake of fire. Cursed in fire, inseparable when God speaks of them. And I can't hammer this point enough. The bludgeoning will continue. My ultimate point is that when Satan and his fallen angels were formally at trial, declared at trial beyond redemption, that's what he does there. They can no longer be redeemed. Ask why. I see you. The timing is such and the location is such that it renders the impossibility of actual cattle and actual beasts, as we humans define them, of having any culpability. So what does it mean? This is a court session, the trial of Satan witnessed by the whole of the angelic host, fallen and unfallen. The place is the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. That's how come you know the Garden of Gethsemane has a relationship to the Garden of Eden. The time and place makes it impossible for the cattle to be cattle and the beasts to be beasts. As does God's justice and goodness. So let's ask the basic questions. What did the beasts eat in the Garden of God at the time of the trial of Satan? The beasts are in the Garden. The trial of Satan is going on. The beasts take a break for lunch. What did they eat? What did they look like, the beasts, in the garden at the time of the trial of Satan? How did they interact in the garden at the time of Satan? What was the conditioned state of the animal kingdom in the garden at the time of the trial of Satan? Were the earthly cattle and the earthly beasts evil in any way at the time of the cursing of Satan? Yes or no, don't raise your hands. If your position is is that he threw the the cattle and the beasts into the lake of fires because they were evil, well, you have to reconcile that with what they were like at the time of the trial. 
How evil do you suspect they were? The cattle and the beasts. Where is the justice of casting the cattle who were there at the time of the trial in the garden into the lake of fire? See the goodness of God? Now, to be equitable, there does exist a substantial volume of scholarship defining the curse of animals as a temporal, physical condition versus Satan's everlasting, permanent condition. They say, the famous they, in effect, that God is drawing a contrast between the physical death of animals and the eternal death of Satan and the fallen angels. With me so far? Eventually, <coughs> excuse me, this line of discussion will lead to attack and defense structures in the animal kingdom. What are attack and defense structures? The animals today have attack and defense structures. They have claws, teeth. It's called tooth and claw. I have armadillos. I have... You ever see the lion attack the water buffalo? The water buffalo has a defense structure. Elephants have defense structures. These are herbivores. Why do they have horns? Why do they have armor? Why do they have hides? So I have attack structures and defense structures. What, have I, what am I asking you? The discussion that we're in now is, is going to lead to attack and defense structures. That's another timeline issue for all of you formulating your timelines. So is anybody formulating a timeline? Don't answer that. It will, it will demoralize me. Let's assume that every one of you go home at night and pull out your timelines and try to do this for my sake. So here's your timeline. Here is the trial right here of Satan. When did animals develop attack structures? Here's the flood. I'll give you the flood right here. Remember, the Ark of Noah looks like a coffin. That's how it's described, or a chest. There's the flood. Where do the animal attack and defense structures? Did the animals at the time of the trial of Satan have attack and defense structures? Yes or no? See or no? Did they have them after the flood? Did they have them before the flood? You figure out where attack and defense structures fit in your timeline. Oh, and when you want to, go ahead and, and, and supper day, if he exists, will tell you again that he came into my office in Vanguard building and he looked behind me and I had all of this stuff on a board. And it, it just really something that I wrestled with and I still consider some of it every once in a while. But you have to put insects in here. Where are insects? Are they the creeping things? You have vertebrates and invertebrates. Attack and defense structures. Some have defense structures, some have attack structures. How did this all come into being? Did God have a system that he called good that where animals destroyed and ate other animals. Is that what he called good? Does he have a system that is built on death? He does not. So where did, how did this all come together? Can you figure it out? Yes, you can. Okay. 
That's a timeline issue for, and so formulate it and place it somewhere. When did attack and defense structures manifest? When did predation occur? When did tooth and claw, stalking, hunting, killing, animal on animal, when did that happen? When exactly did predators begin to tear apart prey? You have it in the first seven days, then reconcile it with God calling it good. For six days. We can quickly narrow it down. Let's do it this way. Before the fall of Satan or after the fall of Satan? Before the fall of Adam or after the fall of Adam? All of you in favor that it is after the fall of Adam, move to the left. All of you who say it was before the fall of Adam, you get no food. Anyway, that will get you started. Before the fall of Satan or after the fall of Satan? Before the fall of Adam or after? Where was I? Scholarship disagrees with me. Can we really call it scholarship if it disagrees with me? Let the record show that no one supported anything. Never mind. Is God saying to Satan, the cattle and the beast will be subjected to physical death, but you, Satan, and your angels will be cast into the lake of fire? Is that what God is saying? That is what scholarship says predominantly. And therefore, the curse of Satan is more than the cattle or the beast. Did you follow that? I know it's late. Most of us are asleep, including me. Did God say to Satan, the cattle and the beast are going to be subjected to physical death? And you, though, your angels and you are going to be cast into the lake of fire. That is eternal, everlasting death. So therefore, cattle and beasts are cursed, but at a lesser degree. So you, Satan, are cursed more than cattle and beasts. Genesis 3.14. Eternal versus temporal. If that's the view, then this be, it begets the question, is physical death in a fallen world a curse or a blessing? I ask this all the time. If animals could not die, animals are not eaten, animals are not stalked and killed by other animals, is that good or bad to be living forever in a sinful world? What would human beings do to a horse if it lived for 500 years? So, is physical death in a fallen word a curse or a blessing? Is physical death, temporary, the temporary separation of the soul from the decaying body, is that a punishment or a relief? Remember, Adam was not cursed. The earth was cursed, the ground. Adam was not subjected to fire, eternal separation. The earth was cursed for Adam's sake, Genesis 3.17. For Adam's benefit. You know that he saw it as his benefit. The proof that he saw it as his benefit is because he responds to his sentencing. He renames the woman life. He celebrates this. And God then covers Adam and Eve with the blood of innocent animals. So now what do you know about the animals in the garden? They have to be innocent for them to be sacrificed to get the blood to cover Adam and Eve. Because they portray, their blood portrays the blood of Christ. Note the innocence of the animals in the garden. The innocence of the animals at the time of the trial of Satan cannot be disregarded, in my opinion. They exist now in a sinful, wicked world, but are they cursed? As God defines it, he defines curse as going to the lake of fire. Animals cursed. That's going to carry us to Ecclesiastes 3.18-22. 
which is where we discuss the immortality of animals. Uh, people have a view of Ecclesiastes 3.18.22 that is absolutely impossible to defend. Animals have immortality. That's a discussion we've had before, but nonetheless it rises at Genesis 3.14.15. Point being, if cattle and beasts are not the cursed cattle and beasts, who then are the cattle and beasts who are cast into the lake of fire? Who are the goats that are cast into the lake of fire? i got cattle, beasts, and goats now. Identify them. Finally, everybody loves finally, connect the state of animals to the state of humanity and the state of the angelic realm. I'm suggesting that it cannot be done. What I mean by that is Adam and Eve, humanity had two trees. Satan and angels had two trees. Animals didn't have two trees. The animals have existence. They do not have two trees. Animals have will, they have willfulness, and uh, willfulness and, and existence are intrinsic. So they have existence and they have will because existence and will can't be separated. But animals do not have fault as God defines fault. The sacrificial system, the sacrificing of innocent animals, animals undeserving of condemnation illustrate the principle of salvation through blood atonement. How come we don't take the blood of human beings and put it on the altar? Some do. We call them pagans and God throws them in the lake of fire. He doesn't use the blood of human beings because human beings are what? In a different state than animals. Animals are in a state of representing Christ. Now we have predators and non-predators and sacrificial, uh, clean and unclean. In Leviticus, we've done all that before too, but you can figure out the principle eventually without me going back into that. Animals are undeserving of condemnation, and therefore they can be used as substitutionary atonement. We can use their blood as a portrayal, as a type of Christ. The blood of animals are a stand-in for the blood of Christ. My blood is not, your blood is not, eligible to be a stand-in for the blood of Christ. Why did he cover Adam and Eve with the blood of animals? Because animals can portray Christ. What's being said? Human blood is not able to represent the blood of Christ. What does that mean? Next week, we will continue the ending of Genesis 3.